Hello, I'm Lucy, and in this episode of Footnoting History, I'll be discussing the curious appearances of Sherlock Holmes in popular culture. Since his public debut in 1887, the world's only independent consulting detective has appeared to solve the world's problems in almost any medium imaginable. I want to explore how this happened and suggest a solution to the mystery of why. Much creative energy and scholarly ink has been expended in solving the conundrums of Sherlock Holmes. I don't presume to offer any final solutions here. After all, I've only been a Sherlockian for about 20 years, and Sherlockiana is not my primary scholarly sideline. What I am doing is training my historian's eye on the unique place of Sherlock Holmes as a pop culture phenomenon. The great detective has enjoyed enormous popularity for over a hundred years, with societies of varying degrees of secretness devoted to him, academic and amateur essays, and bewildering volumes of pastiche, parody, and fanfic. The first spin-off stories were being written long before Arthur Conan Doyle's canon was complete. At the time of writing, the world, or a part of it, waits for a television special based on one of Sherlock's early unchronicled cases. Adaptations of, and homages to, the Sherlockian canon continue to appear in remarkable quantity and still more remarkable variety. The longevity and variety of Sherlock Holmes's presence in popular culture can be explained, in my opinion, by two things, the nature of the canon and the essential function of Sherlock Holmes himself, to solve the unsolvable. The canon of 56 stories and four novels is incomplete at its core. It never pretends to be anything else. We are given, from the very start, over 30 identified but untold cases with tantalizing titles. My personal favorite is The Adventure of the Tired Captain. Also, Watson makes many more allusions to affairs of great importance undertaken by Holmes but never chronicled by his faithful Boswell. Moreover, the chronology as given by Watson leaves much to be explained, to put it mildly, and this provides ideal ground for the fertile imaginations of fans to work on. The original Holmes stories were published in popular magazines and thus instantly available to a wide reading public. The public was so passionate that Conan Doyle famously got hate mail after publishing The Final Problem, in which Sherlock Holmes is supposed to have died. The Hound of the Baskervilles was published, as it were, posthumously, and it was only three years later that the great detective returned, to the delight of Dr. Watson and the reading public. Commentaries and speculations on the canon itself were created and published at the same time that it was being created. This may seem perfectly normal to a generation that grew up reading and speculating and writing about Harry Potter. It may even be unsurprising to the first devotees of Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. But the pop culture phenomenon of Sherlock Holmes, I argue, is distinctive not only because of its remarkable longevity, but for its resilience, its diversity, and for the ability of the canonical works themselves to survive, augmented but never superseded in popularity, alongside the extraordinarily diverse works which they have inspired. The Holmes stories were not only syndicated for publication in English-speaking periodicals outside Britain, but translated into multiple languages. 
the first German-language translation appeared in 1906, the first in Turkish in 1907. The Turkish-language career of Sherlock Holmes is particularly notable, as the detective appeared in over 200 original stories and pseudo-translations in the first half of the 20th century. Widespread Turkish interest in the Sherlock Holmes canon was itself sparked by a fan work. An early French stage play was staged in Istanbul in 1909. At the same time that the canon's global reach was growing, parodies of Sherlock Holmes flourished in Punch and elsewhere. These satirized some of the inconsistencies and tropes of the canon. A tongue-in-cheek essay by a biblical scholar did the same thing in 1911, and this is a delight. Arguably, these satires also expressed some of the Edwardian anxieties about a changing world that are sometimes glossed over in the canon itself. To discuss social issues of Victorian and Edwardian England and Britain as they appear in the Sherlock Holmes stories would take another podcast. There are not only multiple stage plays about Sherlock Holmes, but more surprisingly, a Holmes ballet. The Sherlock Holmes ballet, The Great Detective, was created in Russia in 1912. Photographs from later performances survive, and there is a very particular joy about seeing a man in a deerstalker hat and Inverness cape performing a grand jeté. As I discovered while researching this podcast, recent ballet performances have been choreographed using the music of the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes film. As mediums of entertainment multiplied in the 20th century, so too did Sherlock Holmes spin-offs. A film short called Sherlock Holmes Baffled was used to illustrate the capabilities of the new medium in the early 20th century, although, to my disappointment, the detective character in this film bears little resemblance to Holmes himself. He's just baffled by disappearing villains. The first full-length Holmes film dates to 1916, 11 years before the last stories of the canon were published. A hundred years later, the large and small screens continue to boast Holmes adaptations. I don't know of born digital adaptations of Holmes's exploits, though please do augment my knowledge if you can, and there are several podcasts devoted to him and innumerable YouTube fan vids, themselves based on a wide variety of adaptations. So across all these mediums, for all these audiences, what does Sherlock Holmes do? In the opening titles of Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, a 1942 film very loosely based on His Last Bow, viewers were informed that Sherlock Holmes, quote, is ageless, invincible, and unchanging, unquote. In this film, and several subsequent ones starring Basil Rathbone, Holmes and his faithful Watson were brought into the present day to solve significant problems and to exorcise fear during the Second World War. It is no coincidence, in my view, that the turbulent 1940s saw several Holmes adaptations, with a radio series also starring Basil Rathbone and the Solar Ponds series of August Derleth, offering adventures told in traditional style but updated to use contemporary technologies. Conan Doyle's descendants brought legal claims against Derleth and also objected to parodies collected as the misadventures of Sherlock Holmes, but these works remained popular with fans. The 1950s, boasted a TV series with dramatic voiceovers, and a collection of fairly traditional pastiches co-authored by one of Arthur Conan Doyle's sons and a popular mystery novelist. Subsequent decades brought different interests and different visions of Holmes. 
The 1970s concern with drug use saw Holmes not only solving mysteries, but being cured of his cocaine addiction by Sigmund Freud in The 7% Solution. This best-selling novel later became a lavishly produced and much-discussed film. I was surprised to learn, when researching this podcast, that the 1970s saw a veritable boom of new Sherlock Holmes stories. Far from becoming unfashionable as the hero of an earlier age, the detective was embraced anew. Even as Sherlock Holmes adaptations, sequels, and spin-offs have proliferated, a knowledge of, and reverence for, the canon has run within and alongside many such efforts. When Billy Wilder, arguably Hollywood's foremost director of romantic drama, was turning his hand to speculation in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, he opened his film with Dr. Watson's tin dispatch box, familiar to all readers of the canon, and the deerstalker hat, familiar to all who had ever seen the detective's silhouette. A beloved activity for some Sherlockians, myself included, is the comparison of cinematographic choices across adaptations from the 1930s to the present. The reincarnation after a fashion of Basil Rathbone in the person of Basil the Great Mouse Detective on page and screen is but one such example. The antics of Peter Cushing and Jeremy Brett with a hat in The Blue Carbuncle are another and delightful one. Spotting references to the canon in new works can also bring hours of innocent entertainment. The BBC's Sherlock has not only brought new Sherlockians into the fold, but uses allusions to the canon in numerous and, in my opinion, often virtuosic ways. Sherlock Holmes has proved resilient enough that, as played by both Basil Rathbone and Benedict Cumberbatch, he solves cases as easily in a contemporary London as in his own. As proved by Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu, Holmes and Watson's inimitable partnership can also be transplanted to New York City of the 21st century. It is worth noting, by the way, that the possibility of Watson being a woman was suggested as early as 1941, albeit facetiously, by the award-winning mystery novelist Rex Stout. Also of interest is that Stout bases his argument on the fact that Holmes and Watson behave like a married couple, which I find adorable. Holmes has influenced fictional detectives from Lord Peter Wimsey, who, according to Dorothy L. Sayers, once consulted Sherlock Holmes himself, to Phryne Fisher, who chose her house number so her investigation headquarters could be 221B. Arguably, Holmes has also provided an indispensable model even for the numerous police detectives of television who, like the master, are willing to break the rules for the sake of justice. The children's retelling through which I first discovered the detective states that, quote, Sherlock Holmes will never die. The master sleuth and his friend Dr. Watson will forever prowl through thick London fogs and stalk across lonely moors on the trail of those individuals foolish enough to break the law. This summary is an oversimplification not only of the plots of the canon, however, but also of its moral universe. The capability, eagerness even, of the detective to grapple with complex moral questions has been a factor of increasing importance to writers and readers as they engage with the canon and create and engage with new works. In the 2011 pastiche, The House of Silk, for instance, Holmes remains in Victorian London, but confronts a type of crime endemic to 21st century headlines. In the poignant novel A Slight Trick of the Mind, recently adapted for film as Mr. Holmes with Ian McKellen, 
the detective engages with perhaps permanently elusive problems of aging and memory, of love and loss. In James Hilton's 1941 novel, Random Harvest, a veteran of the First World War says to his friend and secretary, Of course, you were born too late to feel as I did. Sherlock's in Baker Street, all's right with the world. The friend responds, We now realize that most things are wrong with the world. This exchange, to my mind, gets to the heart of the phenomenon of Sherlock Holmes, whether as ascetic intellectual or man of action, as irascible genius or tender friend. In all of these roles, and more, the great detective has fascinated, and sometimes provoked, global audiences. Holmes himself describes his work to a client as consisting largely in the hearing of strange secrets and bringing peace to troubled souls. As long as life presents unsolvable problems, the game's afoot. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.